Today's reading will be from Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the, in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place by God, for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thanks, Brian. <clears throat> well, this is one of those uh, messages, and probably for the next two or three weeks after uh, this week, too, um, where uh, there's probably more left on the cutting room floor than I was able to include in the message. And so uh, today I'm going to try very hard to stay close to my notes, uh, as when I wander from them, that tends to make things go much longer. I've been wrestling with this message, this one today, literally for six weeks, and uh, it's an important message. Um, I've found that generally, when it comes to the book of Ephesians, which by the way, if you're new, we're walking through the letter that Paul writes to the church at Ephesus while he's in Uh, prison in Rome about the year 60 AD, so getting close to the end of his life. But generally, people love, just love Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And then after that, uh, if you're reading it, you just sort of skim until you get to chapter 4, and then we're all very excited about chapters 4, 5, and 6, all the application of the gospel. And really, uh, verses... 11 of chapter 1, of chapter 2 through uh, the end of chapter 3, uh, we don't really look at too closely. That's just been my experience in the last 30 years. And there's an irony there because most scholars say that chapter 2, verses 11 through chapter 3, verse 13, is the theological heart and central jewel of the letter to the Ephesians. The theological heart and the central jewel. So this area that many of us tend to skip over uh, because there's some serious and difficult wrestling to to reconcile in it, uh, this is actually the heart of the letter that we're in right now. Uh, Dr. Gil Bilizikian, some of you maybe have heard of this guy, pretty famous guy, he's a theology professor. Uh, He writes this, there was a time when people became so devoted to God and so committed to each other that the walls that, that, that divided them simply came tumbling down. 
Today, what we look at, we're not going through the entire passage that Brian read. We're going to stop at verse 18, but I wanted to have the whole context there for us. Today, what we look at is the formerly far-off Gentiles, prior to receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ, were alienated, excluded, and recipients of hostility. Alienated, excluded, and recipients of hostility. But now, they are reconciled, unified, and recipients of peace. And the Jews, the Jews who were ostensibly devoted to the Mosaic Law, and because they had the Mosaic Law, they thought that that alone qualified them to be in, in, in the kingdom of God, they were actually in the impossible situation of being able to keep the law. And furthermore, that while they couldn't keep the law, they also used the law of God to divide people and to separate themselves from others. And so they needed redemption too. It is true that the Gentiles and the Jews have been reconciled to each other in Christ, but also they have been re reconciled to the Father through Christ. So there's a vertical and a horizontal that's going on here. The Jews also, they needed to come to Jesus, and those who have, they are also redeemed, just like the Gentiles are redeemed in the gospel. But now they have to figure out how to live together, how to be a part of the same body. So understand, these two people groups, the Jew and the Gentile, a Gentile is anyone who's not a Jew. So these two people groups, the Jew and the Gentile, formerly not friends at all, and that might be the nicest way that I can say that, have now become one flesh in Christ. They become one flesh, and that is not an exaggeration. There is a marriage metaphor that runs throughout the Bible. We, we need to understand this. When we look at Ephesians chapter 5, people say, oh, the marriage passage. Yes, it is about marriage, but believe it or not, that passage is not primarily about marriage. It is primarily about the marriage between Jesus, the groom, and his bride, the church. And that marriage metaphor goes all the way back into Genesis 2. And Paul uses this language of the marriage metaphor to discuss in this section of Ephesians his understanding of the mystery of the gospel, which means we are unified, we have one flesh. We become, as Luke has titled this message today, for all of the congregations, one new man. We are one new man. It's Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And I understand that the context there is marriage. But the same language is being used here by Paul to talk about the Jew and the Gentile being reconciled, that the two are being knit together inextricably and becoming one flesh. That's what's going on here. And again, it's all over the Bible. It's, it's the groom Jesus and bride the church. It's, it's during the Exodus when God calls his people out of Egypt. He calls them out as his bride. And, and, and during his relationship with the people of God, the, the Jews, the Israelites, he is constantly referring to them as his bride and treating their idolatrous behavior like they are adulterers. Read the prophet of Hosea. That's all about how 
the Jewish people have left their marriage with Yahweh and gone off and become adulterers. They have prostituted themselves to false gods. Then think about when the new Jerusalem comes. So you can't get away from this. Think about when the new Jerusalem comes. When Jesus comes a second time and the new Jerusalem is coming. The new Jerusalem comes adorned as what? A bride. Yes, thank you for those of you who are reading Revelation. The new Jerusalem comes adorned as a bride to be knit together and restorative of the creation, to finally uh, redeem everything fully. It's, a, it's, it's this marriage metaphor. And this marriage metaphor also applies to race. And that's what Paul is talking about here. In other words, you and I are called in the gospel to see the other, the other meaning those who are different from us. You know, we like people that look just like us and act just like us. We're just most comfortable with that. We are called to see the other as one flesh with us and us as one flesh with them. And you'll see that especially in verses 14 and 15. And while this alone is certainly good news in itself, this passage offers even more than that. There are words in this passage such as made in the flesh by hands, which we human beings have this tendency to do, and especially the dividing wall of hostility. I'm not fully convinced, and I throw myself in this category, because this takes a, a, a lot of time to really appreciate because we are just so self-centered. I'm not convinced that we, in 21st century Arcadia, really appreciate the historical and cultural context of what Paul writes here and the tension that what he writes brings to his place and time and also to us today. If we're serious about looking at this, we need to understand that this passage is primarily about the gospel and race or ethnicity, if you prefer that term. And, and, and I want you to hear me. You heard Chuck, I, this was not planned. It just worked out this way, and that is all praise to God for doing this. I want you to hear me. This is not about the liberal left or the conservative right. It's not about that. It's about both the left and the right, both the left and the right, coming to terms with the fact that they are both wrong about a lot when it comes to the gospel and both need redemption, not more political wrangling. Ethnic harmony is one of the great themes of the Bible and not just in Ephesians chapter 2. And if you decide to frame this section of Ephesians politically and not as a gospel issue, you are missing the point. One of my favorite games, Adventures in Missing the Point. You're missing the point. Reconciliation is a gospel issue. Marriage is a gospel issue. Race is a gospel issue. All of life is all for Jesus. And Paul, Paul here sees this not as some individualistic, it's all about me and my salvation issue, but rather as a community, a body and a movement of people unified in the gospel issue. That's the way he sees it. This is not a me thing. You and I, again, as 21st century Americans, 
We are so individualistic in all of our perspectives, and it's one of the many dividing walls that we, that we erect, and we should recognize that and talk about it. It's all about me. The greatest religious movement in our culture today is something called meism. Do I need to explain that to anybody? That's a problem. Here you go. The Bible needs to critique our assumptions and our fears and not the other way around. Too often we bring our assumptions and our fears to Scripture and that's the grid through which we critique Scripture. And it needs to be done the other way around. And yes, Jesus saves sinners. He saves individual sinners. But remember, he saves them to a body and he drops them in a church. That's like a requirement of the gospel. He calls us and he gifts us for love, gifts us for love, for service, for unity, and for empathy. We rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. You can't do that by yourself. That's a relational community thing. And so for us to understand the gospel and our salvation today, as every Sunday, we have to be faithful to the text, faithful to Paul, and faithful to the history, context, and grammar. There was hostility in Paul's day between ethnicities and cultures. There was hostility between people. And Paul talks about it no matter what the tension, and he talks about the power of the gospel to reconcile and unify. Here's our big idea today. You haven't seen one of these in a while, but I decided to have one. The gospel reconciles and unifies. Humans put up dividing walls of hostility and then point fingers. Now, that's kind of an in-your-face big idea, amen? But I don't doubt that it's true. Um, but if you'd like a, a more nuanced big idea, here's one. And here's one that we really need to think deeply about a lot. Okay? If we all follow Jesus hard for the next 10 years, we will all look more like Jesus and not necessarily more like each other. Unity, not conformity. Oneness, not sameness. Like-minded, not same-minded. A true working body, not a collection of clones. So with that introduction, let's just go right to the text. And we're just going to go verse by verse, starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the circumcision by what is called, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Stop there. So here you go. Paul is talking right now to Jew, uh, Gentile Christians, but he knows Jewish Christians are listening. So he's kind of talking some indirect trash to the Jews. He's saying, you Jews spent a lot of time name-calling the Gentiles. Uncircumcised, unclean, out, excluded. That's who you were. And notice he starts this section with the word therefore. The therefore refers back to verse 10. Verse 10 says, we are the workmanship of God, all of us, created in Christ Jesus. Not created in us. Our identities aren't constructed by us in the gospel. They're constructed by Jesus' power and love for the work of the gospel in our lives so that we might do the work of becoming one in him, reconciled and unified by his grace. And Paul then goes to work explaining what that means in the face of tremendous racial, ethnic, and cultural divides between the Jews and the Gentiles. 
In other words, between the privileged and the underclassed. The circumcision, understand the vernacular here. The circumcision was a way of saying the covenant people of God. And implied for the Jews, of course, is privilege and superiority. And it's even dismissive of others. It's dismissive of the Gentiles. Circumcision also marks the right of entry into a relationship with the Mosaic Law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and consequently then a relationship with God. You had to get circumcised, which led you into the law, and then you had a relationship with God. And so here you go. Here's the short version of that story. You want to know God? You got to start by getting circumcised. That's how you start. Notice how Paul words this, though. Even as a Jew, understand, Paul's a Jew... And he words this in a way that he doesn't really seem to care for this. It's like you, you recognize that he begins to see the folly in this. He, he, used to do, he used to defend this perspective to the death. But now in Christ, he has died to this perspective. He sees it as empty ritual. Not that God did something wrong by giving Moses the law, but because... Humans have a way of taking God's good law, his commands, his loving guidelines, and just use them to hamstring others. That's what humans do. God never intended that. His call on the Jews was to be a light to the world, a light to the Gentiles, even through the law, not to use the law to turn the Gentile into a second-class citizen. The Jews used the law to make them appear godlier, But Paul calls out this farce. He says, the way the Jews used the law was not godly, but it was in the flesh. They used the law in the flesh, in their own desires and passions. And so what do we do? This caused me to ask, what do we do in the flesh in order to make us appear godlier? In the flesh, not by the power of the Spirit, but what do we do in our flesh to make ourselves appear godlier. I had a list of about 150 things. I'll give you three. Here's one of them. Uh, we've, and uh, Cody has talked about this, so this is why I wanted to include it. Uh, we've become awareness addicts. We have become awareness addicts, self-glorifying in how much we care about any relevant issue, but slow to be a part of, act, uh, of actually solving it, if ever. I posted something to Facebook and Twitter, that's all I need to do. I made other people aware of it, now they can go do something about it. My job is done. Here's another one. We really believe that we can be moral without the filling and the power of the Holy Spirit. We can be moral by by our wisdom, our will, and our power, not God's. That's in the flesh. Here's one more. We, We look and act like we have it all together when we know that we are still in the refinement process. You know, Sunday morning, are you ready for church? Put on your happy, righteous face. (laughs) The reality is is that we're all works in progress, not finished products. And Scripture is very clear about that. So then you look at verse 12, moving along. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Uh, This is the only verse where I see uh, Paul trying to call the Gentiles uh, to appreciate something about the Jews in this. Most of it, he's he's explaining to them, I understand your situation, that you've been separated out your whole lives. 
But here, what he's, what he's getting across is, you may not like the Jews, and they certainly have treated you bad in the past, self-righteously and without dignity, but you are now all in the gospel, part of, and, and because of that, you, you should, you're going to be a part of their history, and they're a part of your history and, and heritage, and so you should know it, and you should embrace it, and you should appreciate it. Here's an example. Maybe not a good one, but nevertheless an example. I'm Irish, but I love the Old Testament, even the non-drinking parts, okay? And then verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Brought near is a colloquialism for now with. The Gentiles are now with the Jews, and the Jews are now with the Gentiles, and both are reconciled to God. Horizontal and vertical. And then verses 14 and 15. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." Jesus is our peace. And what is that dividing wall of hostility? This may be shocking to some of us. The dividing wall of hostility is the Mosaic law. It's the law. It's the Ten Commandments. How is that possible? The Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, the, the good... You know what that was called? It was called the holiness code. And this has become the dividing wall. How is that possible? Well, here it is. If we're the people who have the holiness code, then there's only one conclusion that we can reach. We are the holy ones and not you. And that's how it was used. And you can feel that tension right now. You can see how that breeds suspicion and animosity, and it becomes a dividing wall. And I think you can also see how Christians today fall into this trap. You know, you and me. We all have our dividing walls. We do. As a pastor, I experience them almost every single day. And further, as if this sort of metaphorical wall wasn't enough, there was also a genuine barrier in the temple of God, the outer court where the Gentiles were supposed to stay. They were... If you wanted to come into the temple, you could only come so far. You can't, can't let you in any further. We have to keep you out there on the perimeter. Um, the way the Jews felt about the Gentiles is kind of the way Dwight Schrute feels about city folk. There are good people known as farmers who create and feed and serve a purpose. And then there are city folk, or at least the least of, of creation, lower than rats, all they do is consume and feed off of one another. That's, that's what the Jews thought of the Gentiles. By the way, Dwight Schrute, anybody watch The Office? He is the king of dividing walls, isn't he? That's pretty much his character. He's just erecting dividing walls everywhere. He has a PhD in dividing walls. Okay? And then look at the rest of verse 15. The law is good... But it can never unify the way Jesus does. It does not unify the way Jesus does. All can come to Jesus. All can receive grace from Jesus. There is not a barrier of circumcision. Remember Acts? Remember that big, that big argument they had? No more circumcision. 
This is the gospel. This is grace. There are no barriers, no dividing walls to entering the kingdom of God. The Jews, the covenant people of God, were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, and they'd failed. So Jesus became not only that light, but also the cosmic redeemer and reconciler of all people. And there is now a new temple. And what is that temple? The body of Christ. The body of which we are all members of. The church. So what are our dividing walls? Again, I have a ton of them. Uh, But I want to, hang on now, I want to show you a video that... First of all, I found it because somebody said, this is the best video of what it's like to be on Twitter. And I agree with that. I agree with that. But it's also pretty much the way Christians treat people with their dividing walls. Check out this video. trying to get in the last word. So here's some dividing walls. And you can bring up others if you want for a future sermon, but I've got a few. And believe me, I cut a lot of these out. Um, We are known, Christians, we are known by what we, not by what we are for, but what we are against. And it's not that we don't have convictions. We have to have convictions. There are some close-handed issues. But way too often, our identity comes out of what we find detestable to us, not from what we love. And that's really too bad because we have so much to love and so much to be grateful for. Here's another one. We argue about the granular details of our salvation instead of joyfully celebrating with each other our common blessings. Are we really going to quit talking to each other because we disagree over the mode of baptism? That's not a rhetorical question. I've actually asked that several times to people who have said, I'm done with you and walked away. Over mode of baptism. Bark, 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 run away. The number of people, this is not about me, I'm just giving you illustrations, but the number of people who have broken fellowship with me and broken fellowship with others over baptism, over music, that might be the biggest one. Music over the doctrines of grace and over several other items, is absolutely stunning to me. It's just, I, I, I literally, I don't have anything to say at that point. Here's another one. This, this is probably the most important one, and, and it applies most specifically to our passage. Instead of being quick to empathize, show compassion, and serve others when tragedy strikes... We tend to get high on our horse and push our agenda for gun control, pro-life, immigration, race, new policies, and new laws. People die, and 30 minutes later, people are standing there using that to push their agenda. And let me tell you something. Christians, just a little uh, self-reflection and uh, self-critique, Christians may be the worst at this. We may be the worst at this. And have you noticed how our calls for policies, procedures, rules, causes, and edicts have divided us rather than unite us? Have you noticed that? 
We always come with the intent, oh, this will unite us. But really, all they do is divide us. Here you go. Politics, race, and economics are all walls. It's not that we don't need to discuss them and have positions, and it's not that they aren't realities. We're not trying to eradicate the reality. But the human heart just has a natural sway to use race, wealth, and politics to divide rather than unite. What does the gospel have to say about these things? What does the gospel do with these things? The answer is that Jesus unites, Jesus redeems, Jesus reconciles. Listen closely. If you get nothing else out of today, hear this. Purity by division and separation has been tried for centuries, and it just never works. I'm not trying to exalt myself. I'm just telling you I I feel like I had... I had wonderful examples in the midst of a couple of these things. My parents. My parents had some money. They had a little bit of money. But they always stewarded it for the under-resourced. They were so generous. Even to the extent that toward the end of their life, there was some question about whether or not they'd have enough money to be able to take care of them and live out their life. My parents also fought for racial justice and reconciliation way before it was ever a thing. Way before. And I'm talking about after the 60s and before today. They did it when it really cost something. They did it when it was really, really hard. And I remember that about my parents. If we were to summarize this passage in two terms, they would be peace and reconciled. Peace and reconciled. No more hostility. These things that I just mentioned that we all struggle with, these walls, do they sound like peace, reconciliation, and no more hostility? We need Jesus so bad. We need Jesus. Jesus is the unifier, and he tears down the walls that we construct. Verse 16. Now, some of you are like, is he done yet? And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. It is the cross that kills the hostility. How is that? Well, this is a cosmic reconciliation, not done through human or worldly means, not done in our flesh. It was done in his flesh, his incarnation. But understand this. This is interesting. You maybe have heard the term the suffering of the cross, right? Okay. We need to understand that the suffering of the cross is not the physical agony of crucifixion for Jesus, although it was physically agonizing, but rather the suffering of the cross is the reality that all sin was placed on Jesus and God the Father judges that sin in Jesus. That's the suffering that we're talking about. Think about it. We sin and Jesus endures the consequence. That's pretty amazing. Jesus murders hostility by being murdered. And understand, in Jesus, the the Jews are not left in their status and the Gentiles merely join them. No. The Jews need Jesus too. In Jesus, both Jew and Gentile are reconciled to God. Just because the Jews had the law didn't mean that they weren't breakers of the law. It's Paul's argument in the first three chapters of Romans. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. The law didn't save the Jews. The morality of the Gentiles did not save them. And the hedonism of others did not deliver or satisfy for them. 
all need Jesus and all are unified in Jesus. And that lack of hostility now for you and me, it means that we listen to each other even if we wildly disagree. And I know that's hard. But that means that we die to ourselves and we die to our preferences and we die to our self-righteousness and it means we stop barking. And again, that marriage metaphor, especially in the New Testament, we're made in one flesh, Jesus in the body. And because, frankly, this is primarily, you understand, this is primarily a white congregation that we have here, so I'm going to say it this way. That means us and our black, Hispanic, Asian, Iranian, and so on, brothers and sisters are now one. And here's the thing. I, I counsel a lot of married couples, and generally this is what the agenda is for each of the persons who is married when they come to see me. It is to get me on their side and help me understand how the other is the problem and we need to fix the problem. That's generally how it goes. We do that with race and culture too. And the only thing that works is for us to look at ourselves and figure out what's wrong with us and ask the Spirit to deal with us and ask the gospel to transform us. We're the only ones that we can fix. We're the only ones that we can look at. We're the only ones that can do this. Tim Keller, in his book on marriage, uh, The Meaning of Marriage, he says the same thing. The biggest obstacle to a good marriage is the selfishness and self-centeredness of the two spouses, and they can't point fingers. They need to work on themselves. Martin Luther, the great reformer, says that repentance is the entire life of the Christian, constantly turning away from our flesh and submitting to Jesus and being filled by his spirit. In other words, the gospel is not just vertical. It's not just about us and our relationship with God. It is horizontal. And that means we got to get close to our brothers and sisters. Sean Myers. I love Sean. Don't you? Those of you that know him? Yeah. He'll be here in the fall again. It'll be high attendance day at church. I know. About four years ago, he preached a sermon. I don't know if you remember some of it. It, just, it, just, it was transferred. He said, you know how it's so easy to hate from far away, isn't it? It's really easy to hate through the Internet. It's really easy to hate through television. It's really easy to hate when they're over there and we're over here. It's so easy to be afraid of what we don't understand and have never lived through. Mr. Rogers, remember him? By the way, this is a seminal sermon. I am quoting Dwight Schrute and Mr. Rogers in the same sermon. Um, actually, I'm not even quoting Mr. Rogers. For years, he carried around in his wallet a quote from a social worker, and this is the quote. I don't think there is anyone you couldn't learn to love, empathize with, and have compassion for if you just heard their story. But that requires work. That requires that we're going to get close to each other. That means that we're going to be vulnerable and uncomfortable, kind of like a cross. Jesus says, you need to die to yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. Not to get ahead of myself, but here, here are where the next, uh, here we're, here's where we're going next week, the next four verses for this. Just in case we're not quite getting it today, here you go. Here's how Paul wraps up this little section, but then continues it in chapter 3. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself 
being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for, the, for God by the Spirit. Soaring words. Verse 17. Yes, we have two to go. Verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Uh, preaching both to those far off and near, the redemption and reconciliation of all people is now accomplished and completed in the cross, by the blood, and through the resurrection of Jesus. All of those are required. And then verse 18. For through him, we, have, uh, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Uh, the playing field of joy, purpose, and redemption has been leveled. Uh, five weeks ago, Josh preached that there was a level playing field when it came to our fallenness and our corruption. We're all sinners. It doesn't matter. We're all sinners. You can't say one's a, batter, a worse sinner than the other. We're all on a level playing field. But there had been an unlevel playing field in coming to God, and the Jews had the upper hand. They had the advantage. And they didn't always steward that well. Nevertheless, there was, as God's people, an advantage. They had this advantage. But Paul says now, in Christ, we are not separated by our differences, but united in our redemption. Rosaria Butterfield's most recent book, she writes this, Loyal fellowship of believers is not an add-on to good doctrine. Fellowship of believers is often the vein through which the Savior's blood pumps us whole and well. And notice verse 18 talk, uh, finishes by talking about the Spirit. We have access to the Father through the Spirit. Verse 22 at the end of this also talks about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is a key to this. We cannot live as the body of Christ without Him as the head and the Holy Spirit filling us and gifting us, enabling us and empowering us. That's the key. We can't do this through things in the flesh made by our hands. This is God. Listen, listen, listen. In this passage, Paul does not remove ethnic identity, but he also does not allow ethnic identities to define us. The gospel doesn't mean we lose our ethnic distinctions, but that we are one in Christ. This is about transformation and not eradication, and the transformation is good. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord God, I pray that we would be a people who would hear this and we would celebrate it. That we would, that we would understand that this is, uh, this is something that, that could transform everything, not just us. And that we are ambassadors of this, of this message, of this message of transformation. So God, I pray that we would live this out, that we would, as Chuck said, live through the through and by the fruit of the Holy Spirit. God, help us to do that. Help us to be the ones to reach out, not the ones to nurse our grievances. Help us to be the ones to, um, to look at ourselves and figure out how we can be filled with the Spirit and we can become the light for others. Help us to understand that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.